It is significant that USDA is motivating all this work on nutrition security with a recognition of structural racism and an interest in using our policy levers to begin to make a difference in this area. Welcome to Empathy Effect, the podcast from Forest Marsh Media, where we explore the human side of government. I'm Melissa Harris, and this is our part two of our dive into federal work in food security and nutritional education. On the day-to-day, people who encounter food security programs, like the National School Lunch Program or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP, are probably getting those services from your state government. The federal agency that largely works with your states, nutritional educators, and other local organizations to provide nutritional assistance is the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Food and Nutrition Service, otherwise known as FNS. As a follow-up to our last episode, where we talked about the science of food insecurity, we're going to learn about policies and programs that are improving communities' ability to thrive nutritionally. So today, we'll explore nutrition assistance programs, how they're growing to meet different communities' needs, and how education can also empower people to get the right nutrition and food they need. FNS's first director of Nutrition Security and Health Equity, Dr. Sarah Bleich, will help guide us throughout our conversation today. After teaching and researching health equity and nutrition at Harvard University, she came to USDA and FNS to help enhance food assistance programs with a lens of equity. Okay, Dr. Bleich, thank you so much for joining us on Empathy Effect today. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast series. I want to start by giving our listeners a foundation to understand the food assistance programs that FNS funds, like the National School Lunch Program or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or SNAP, and so much more. Can you briefly talk about them and the people they help? Now, these programs reach tens of millions of Americans, and that includes more than 41 million Americans through SNAP, which stands for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Some of you may know it formally as food stamps. We serve more than 30 million children each day through the National School Lunch Program and nearly half of all infants in the U.S. through WIC, which is the Women, Infants, and Children Program. And this is at about 99,000 schools and a quarter of a million retailers. I'll just make a couple more points um, before I stop, which is that we also invest about a billion dollars per year on nutrition education and promotion efforts across our programs. And we are responsible at USDA of translating the dietary guidelines for Americans through MyPlate and by a broader investment in research and food systems. So diving a little bit deeper, last episode with NHLBI, we broke down some of the medical consequences and health factors of food insecurity but I want to start at the root of how food insecurity can occur. So what are some of the biggest socioeconomic factors for food insecurity and what populations are most at risk? So some of the big drivers are poverty, unemployment, certainly low income, lack of affordable housing, chronic health conditions, lack of access to health care, systemic racism, racial discrimination. There's a long list of things that puts people at higher risk for food insecurity. And what we also know is that certain populations are disproportionately impacted. So, for example, low-income populations, rural populations, and communities of color. 
And the other thing um, that is worth pointing out is that the disparities, for example, the black-white disparities in food insecurity have persisted for a very, very long time. And as it sounds like you heard on the earlier part of this podcast, food insecurity doesn't just matter because people have inconsistent access to food. It's been associated with a host of negative physical, cognitive, and emotional health outcomes. So things like poor diet quality and suboptimal development and function, or even um, increased hospitalizations and healthcare use. And that list goes on and on and on. So it's a really important area to lean in on and try to leverage all the tools that we have to bear to reduce levels of food insecurity. The intersectional aspects behind food and nutrition insecurity are large reasons why Dr. Bleich became USDA's first director of nutrition security and health equity. Because providing quality food access isn't just a matter of getting food to people, but it's also overcoming systemic barriers. These factors have led USDA and FNS to emphasize messaging not just around food insecurity, but nutrition security. So let me just take a moment and define what we mean by nutrition security, which is consistent and equitable access to healthy, safe, and affordable food that is essential to optimal health and well-being. And we have been messaging this concept for about a year. And the number one question that we've received is, well, how does nutrition security differ from USDA's decades-long focus on food insecurity? And there are two distinct differences that listeners should have in mind. The first is that nutrition security recognizes that structural barriers and inequities make it hard for many Americans to maintain an active, healthy life. The second is that our nutrition security efforts emphasize taking an equity lens to everything that we're doing. Now, all of our work in nutrition security at USDA is anchored by four pillars. The first is providing meaningful nutrition support from pregnancy to birth and beyond. The second is connecting all Americans to healthy, safe, affordable food sources. The third is developing, translating, and enacting nutrition science through partnership. And the fourth is prioritizing equity every step of the way. It is significant that USDA is motivating all this work on nutrition security with a recognition of structural racism and an interest in using our policy levers to begin to make a difference in this area. So without question, promoting food nutrition security is a critical ingredient to recovering from the pandemic, to ensuring racial equity, and to promoting health and well-being for the country. Studying the intersection of equity and nutritional well-being is near and dear to Dr. Bleich. Before joining USDA, she researched evidence for policies that prevent obesity and diet-related diseases at Harvard University as a professor. She also has a deep personal history getting support from food assistance programs when she was younger. Yeah, so my interest in the whole food nutrition lane, it's, it's personal for me. So when I was younger, I grew up in inner city Baltimore. I'm uh, half of a twin set. I have a twin sister. I have an older brother. And uh, my parents are still living in the same house they raised us in. They just celebrated their 48th anniversary. But when we were young, we received SNAP, which was then called food stamps. We received WIC. We received school meals for a period. And it made a difference to me as I was growing up. And so now it is just such a huge privilege to be able to work on these programs that I benefited from 
to do things that benefit folks from the community that I grew up in. And I take the work very seriously. And I know that these programs matter. And I know that they matter right now, particularly in light of the pandemic. Speaking of the pandemic, if you recall last episode, we touched upon how the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated food and nutrition insecurity, particularly making those who were already most vulnerable even more so. So during the pandemic, we increased the SNAP maximum benefit amount for tens of millions of participants, and we provided emergency allotments that boosted benefits to the maximum amount for a household size. We also replaced law school meals through a program called Pandemic EBT that provided families with about $35 in grocery benefits per week per child. A third important change is that we rapidly expanded the ability for SNAP benefits to be used online. So at the start of the pandemic, that could only happen in five states. And now it is up to 49 states in the District of Columbia, which is a game changer for families. And then another key thing that happened is allowing waivers for WIC services to be provided remotely. Different people, communities, and states all have different conditions that contribute to food and nutrition insecurity. While you did mention just now that you provide state partners with funding to help feed these people who need them, can you give us a look into what the landscape looks like? How does food and nutrition insecurity vary from region to region, such as like city to rural spaces. So what we know in broad strokes is that food insecurity is significantly lower in the suburbs than in urban and rural areas. And the U.S. is just such a diverse place. And so listeners are not going to be surprised to hear that the prevalence of food insecurity varies a lot from region to region and state to state. So for the regions of the country, the prevalence of food insecurity is significantly higher in the South as compared to the Northeast, the Midwest, and the West. And when we look at states where the estimates are made by combining data from three different years, so in this case, data from 2019 to 2021, the prevalence of food insecurity ranges from 5.4% in the state of New Hampshire all the way up to 15.3% in the state of Mississippi. So a very big difference. Now, the second part of your question is, well, what is driving all that variation? And an important thing to flag here is that a lot of this variation is due to the characteristics of given populations. We've talked about the fact that certain populations are disproportionately impacted by food insecurity, but also their state-level policies and economic conditions. An important flag for listeners to know is that the, the nutrition assistance programs that are administered by the Food Nutrition Service are federally funded and state-administered. So that means that states have a fair amount of authority in how they run the program. So going back to the pandemic EBT, or electronic benefits transfer, that Dr. Bleich just talked about, it provided benefits during the pandemic school closures to children who would have otherwise received free or reduced-priced school meals. FNS provided funding for the service which 35 states opted into applying this policy during the 2021 school year. That policy is just one example of how FNS funds and states administer these programs. You might be thinking at this point, well, how do I know if I have access to certain benefits? How can I learn? 
This is where education comes in, and education is a key piece of FNS's work too. So while we can provide the services to folks to get access to food, having information around how to tap them or generally getting a baseline for how we can be eating more holistically can be game-changing. In your eyes, Dr. Blige, what role do you see education and programming across schools and communities playing for ensuring longer-term nutritional health? Yeah, so that's a great question. As I mentioned, at USDA, we invest more than a billion dollars per year across all of our programs on nutrition education and promotion. One of our flagship nutrition education programs is SNAP-Ed, which um, formerly is SNAP Education. Um, So just a couple words about the program. So SNAP-Ed plays a really critical role in helping people eligible for SNAP to lead healthier lives on a limited budget. And this is critical for long-term health. And it also, another key thing about this program is that it has broad reach into communities. So SNAP-Ed has reach in all 50 states. It is implemented through 166 implementing agencies who then partner with about 34,000 different community groups. And this makes it possible to reach diverse audiences, particularly historically underserved populations. And with this messaging that comes out of SNAP-Ed, it teaches people how to make their SNAP dollars stretch, how to shop and prepare healthy meals, and how to stay physically active. This includes direct education. It also includes social marketing campaigns. And more recently, um, it also includes a focus on policy systems and environmental change strategies. So part of my role at USDA is helping to elevate the importance of SNAP-Ed and the fact that we know that it works. FNS has other educational programs too. Can you briefly share some of those? SNAP-Ed is just one of our nutrition education and promotion programs. So we have Team Nutrition, which focuses on the school meal space. We have WIC Nutrition Education, which focuses on um, pregnant moms, postpartum moms, and young children. And then, as I mentioned, we have investments in translating the messages of the dietary guidelines through MyPlate. We think these investments in nutrition education and promotion help us to ensure we not only provide all Americans with access to safe, nutritious, affordable food, but also help them to understand how to prepare it on a limited budget and then facilitate consumption across a range of life stages and food preferences. How can we leverage community groups and organizations to help spread this information and let people know that these programs you have exist? Yeah, so communication is a key piece of what we do, and we are constantly pushing out information. So let me just give you one example to make this concrete. So we have a campaign right now to make sure that children have access to healthy meals. And the reason that we have that campaign is this year, many families will need to complete an application through their schools to determine if their household is eligible for free or reduced price meals. During the pandemic, there was a waiver in place, which let all children eat meals, school meals for free. But that special authority that USDA had from Congress to offer all children meals at school, it expired in June 2022. So we heard a lot of confusion. So we created a toolkit, which we've been pushing out for the past few months. This is an example of the sort of information and communication that is really important to help get in front of the people that we serve. And we need help with that final mile to ensure that we reach the people 
that could benefit from our programs. Yeah, that extra mile also means making information actionable. How can we build trust and develop the next steps so that people can access programs and make improvements in their own lives? Trusted messengers, community groups are so important to help connect people with our programs. And if the messages are delivered by trusted messengers, that will help make the information stickier. So for those of you who are listening, who work with individuals that um, participate in our programs or have reached into communities of individuals who participate in our programs, we would love your help in spreading the word, not just about the back to school uh, information, but in general, there's a wealth of information you can find on the Food and Nutrition Service website. Disseminating information about all the different programs that USDA administers would be incredibly helpful to make sure that all of those who are eligible actually participate. I love how you had that call to action just there. And, you know, it sort of just makes me think about where we go next. So where do you see efforts with food security and education going forward? You know, economically right now, inflation is a huge concern and people go to the grocery store and get sticker shock. And as you mentioned, food insecurity was exacerbated by COVID. So given all of these barriers that still exist, what does FNS want to do next alongside its federal and local partners to really make an impact for people? So we'll just say that to your point around inflation, one of the things for listeners to know about our programs is that some of them are actually designed to adjust for food inflation. So at the start of the new fiscal year, the um, average SNAP benefit increased by about 12.5% because of food inflation. That is one of the largest inflationary increases in the history of the program. So I say all that to say we not only have programs like SNAP, which put food within reach, but they are designed to adjust to economic factors, which affect families in real ways. So in terms of where we're going, you know, we are moving full steam ahead on all of our nutrition security work. We are also focused on leveraging the momentum of the recent and historic White House conference and to implement the national strategy that was released alongside the conference. You know, in that national strategy, USDA has more than 60 different actions um, that are all in, in support of the conference goals, which are ending hunger by 2030 and reducing diet-related diseases and disparities in the same time frame. Of all those dozens of actions, our number one priority is ensuring a pathway for healthy school meals for all. So that's a critical piece of our work ahead. But things to keep an eye out on in the coming uh, weeks and months are we'll be updating the school meal standards, we'll be launching tribally-led initiatives, tribally-led nutrition initiatives, and we'll be initiating the next edition of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. And so specific to that, we'll be announcing the 2025 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee in early 2023. And that's just a few things that we have in the hopper. There's so much happening at the Food Nutrition Service at USDA. And when we put all those things together, we expect these actions to improve nutrition security for tens of millions of Americans. But I would not be doing my job if I didn't issue a call to action, which is we cannot do this work alone at USDA. So a big piece of what we're trying to do is to build awareness, to strategically engage critical partners to help us. So I, I ask you all who are listening to think about the ways in your professional roles or your personal roles. How can you lean in and make a difference? 
And even if you think it's a small step, it all adds up and can drive towards meaningful change. Between increasing SNAP benefits and seeing the White House hold a conference around addressing hunger and nutrition security and everything else that government is doing, it's really wonderful to hear the plans and actions we're going to see down the road. But in the meantime, um, the average person could take action too, like volunteer at a food bank or help people in need access food assistance programs. So as we end our conversation, how can we in our communities, help those around us get the proper nutrition and food they need? Sure. So there's lots of things that you could do and really encourage folks to have a look at the national strategy, which may, it has a series of call to action boxes in it, which may get your juices flowing about how you could engage, but you could volunteer at a local food bank. You could help um, push the word out through your local community groups about various USDA programs. There, and if, particularly if you're a trusted messenger amongst a lot of different people, you should use that platform to spread the word about programs that we know make a meaningful difference in people's lives. And so those would be the things that I would really encourage listeners to think about doing. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for your team at FNS for all you've done to help communities so far and to help us move forward in the future. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate being invited. As we wrap things up here today, over the upcoming holiday season, please take a moment to reflect upon and show gratitude for any family, friends, or community you may have and the support they provide you. Take another moment to think about how you can support your community and provide them with meals, services, and other resources, including those that FNS and its state administrators provide. Thank you to Dr. Bleich and Dr. Brown from our last episode for sharing this special two-parter with us. And thank you listeners for joining us throughout these conversations. We'll be back after the holidays with our next episode on January 5th. Please remember to subscribe to Empathy Effect wherever you get your podcasts or at forestmarsh.com. If you're enjoying this show, please leave a review or better yet, share the show with your friends and family when you see them for the holidays. Stay safe, be well, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Empathy Effect is a product of Forrest Marsh. You can reach us at Forrest Marsh Media at ForrestMarsh.com with any feedback, questions, or inquiries.